Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now nearing the end of our third season, but we are just as excited as we were from the beginning to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show in our series on health and environmental impacts of our food production, agriculture and land use systems. And today we're going to be focusing in on the intersection of climate change with the foods we do eat and the foods that we do not eat. Now, as dramatically as climate change stands to literally remap our planet and our lives, no effects of this will be more profound than those on our food system. Climate change is indeed reshaping the life that once teemed in our oceans and that billions of people rely on for sustenance. It's complicating the growing conditions for everything from everyday lettuce to rarefied truffles. And it's making the act of eating beef a little more indefensible with each passing year. And even if you've had the luxury of paying no mind to climate change, you will believe me, eventually taste it. Now, climate change puts the food supplies at risk of people in developing as well as undeveloped nations equally. It's, it's an equal opportunity occurrence. So why does this matter or why must it matter to us? Well, about 800 million people worldwide lack food. Many more have deficiencies in their essential nutrients. And 76% of the world's population gets most of its daily nutrients from plants. Yet, climate change is already causing droughts and flooding that can destroy our staple crops. If extra CO2 in the atmosphere makes those crops less nutritious, it will even be harder to feed the world's growing population. And we're actually already seeing climate migration or climate change refugees. Daily, we hear on the news about how in many, if not most, of the developing countries of the world, immigration is a major and often divisive issue. And much of this is due to climate migration or climate change refugees. In most of the places where food is grown today, crop yields are likely to be lower as well as the nutrient content of our food uh, lower because of the effects of climate change. Studies have shown that increased temperature and elevated CO2 levels can reduce the nutrient density of our staple crops. And right now, more than 2 billion people worldwide 
are indeed undernourished. And that number grows as crops lose nutrients due to the rising CO2 emissions that are driving climate change. As well, what we eat affects climate change. That is the other side of the coin. Filling our daily diet with more plants and fewer animal products has more impact on the environment, actually, than taking shorter showers or switching to energy-efficient light bulbs, says one researcher. Food production in itself is a significant source of global greenhouse gases. Animal agriculture, particularly the cultivation of beef and dairy cows, is the leading culprit as cows emit millions of tons of methane each year. And Americans consume an average of 200 pounds of meat per person per year, an eating pattern that's being adopted around the world as developing nations gain wealth. And that's always been intriguing to me, why wealth brings about more what we usually consider bad eating or certainly eating that is harmful for the planet. But it does. It actually takes a lot of land to grow food for these animals that people eat and for the planet's human population of 7.8 billion, half of the ice-free land on Earth is what it takes. The growing need for grazing lands leads to deforestation, which eliminates habitat for wild animals and trees that would otherwise remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and keep moisture in the ground, which further exacerbates climate change. Now, under current conditions, about 4% of the world's croplands experience drought in any given year. But By the end of the century, those conditions are projected to jump to about 18% per year. And some studies indicate that horticultural crops, generally everything besides our staples like rice and corn, may be impacted most severely, largely because they tend to be constrained to a smaller geographic area. And many researchers... um, as well as their group of researchers and their colleagues, have found that 80% of coffee-growing zones in Central America and Brazil could become unsuitable by the year 2050, which is not all that far from now. For example, while climate change will likely have profound impacts on cocoa production in West Africa, also, high-quality chocolate will be less available in the future. And if you want it, You'll certainly have to pay a lot more for it, one researcher says. Now, this is a lot, and it's complicated, and it's all intertwined. But here today to help us explore and understand this are some very smart people who have been studying this and been involved in this for a long time. With us today, we have Kathy Day. And Kathy is the Climate Policy Coordinator for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Kathy has worked at the intersections of agriculture and climate change for the past 20 years. And in her time spent in academic research and teaching, she studied the transformation of farming and the influence of climate change on agriculture in Niger, New Mexico, and Florida. Her past includes three years as a Peace Corps volunteer, where she was helping farmers who were experiencing climate, economic, and social change. And she also spent time as a public school science teacher, as well as a farm apprentice and a curriculum developer on farm learning. Welcome, Kathy. Did I get all of that right? 
Yes, you did, Bernice. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us. Our other guest today is Heather Carpenter. Heather is a lecturer at the University of Portland, and she lives on a small farm where she raises most of her family's meat and vegetables. Heather teaches environmental science and a food systems course called the Science of Sustainable Gourmet. Heather dreams of a time when she can separate her family totally from the industrial food system, that is dairies and grain, and she loves to share her journey with her students. Welcome, Heather. Did I get all of that right? You got it great. Thanks for welcoming me. And thank you so much for joining us, Heather. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to start with Kathy. And if you can just tell us briefly, but also connecting the dots, how is climate change impacting our food supplies? Yeah, well, we've certainly seen a lot of impacts on climate, from climate change on food supplies just the last few years. We saw a significant and growing drought in the Southwest, and that's affecting what we're seeing not only places like California and the other parts of the Southwest, but also places like the Pacific Northwest, where we had that great big heat dome last year with really high temperatures that were absolutely unprecedented. So those kinds of things affect not just what people are able to grow, but how much people can be outside doing the work of being farmers. So I'm sure that Heather can tell us a bit more about that impact in particular, but lots of ways in which climate change is affecting what we can grow and how well we'll be able to grow it in the future. And it, it, I, I rather suspect, well, I know, that a lot of those ways, even though all of us experience them daily, they just don't dawn on us that this really is affecting our food supply and what we eat and what we don't eat. We just take them as a, a matter of course. So I know we talked about heat, certainly is one of those, uh, droughts. But I imagine there are also some other types of weather events uh, that are uh, impacting our food supply. Heather, you want to talk to us from the standpoint of being a farmer yourself? Briefly. I actually want to talk to you about something that Kathy brought up about the berries in the heat dome last year. The berries in the Pacific Northwest are really hurting because last year, of course, the heat dome came right when they were just starting to fruit and it fried them all, like fried them all. This year... It's been cold. We have had record cold and wet. And so now we are like the berries all taste like mud. They literally taste like mud and there's hardly any berries. And so one of the things that's important about climate change is change, not just heat, which people think, oh, it's global warming. It's change. And so the randomness is making it so you could have too cold one year, too hot the other year, and you don't get berries regardless. Indeed. And we just have uh, one minute to go before we go to break. Uh, What are some other areas that are being affected by some of these extreme weather events? And what is the food that we don't get or that that we get that's not tasty from those areas? Um, There's everything. I'm going to just say everything. Honestly, you've got meat that's being affected with droughts killing animals. You've got wine being affected. You've got chocolate being affected. You've got coffee being affected. Like, Take your favorite food and climate change is impacting it is really what it boils down to. Indeed. And, and, and we want to pack, unpack this a lot more for people so they really realize what's going on. Uh, I think most of us will realize it when it uh, begins to affect that food that we love the most. Like I know for me, a few years back, it was coffee. I'm a coffee file, and and it hit hard. And so everybody has their own coffee. We're going to talk a lot more about this with Heather Carpenter and Kathy Day on the other side of the break. Thank you, ladies. We'll be right back. We want 
want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas, Fort Worth. Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lund Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on agriculture, food production and land use as we explore the issue of the intersection of climate change with the foods we eat and the foods that we don't eat. And we are back with Dr. Kathy Day, uh, who is a climate policy coordinator for the, for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, and Dr. Heather Carpenter, who is at the University of Portland, and she also lives on a small farm where she raises her family's meats and vegetables. So two really cool experts helping us to understand and unpack all of this today. Now, I want to continue uh, with our conversation about how climate change is impacting our, our food supplies. And Heather just mentioned the berries, which I'm assuming the berries is a crop that's uh, indigenous to your area. Let me go to Kathy. Are there some other notable crops across the U.S. that have been uh, significantly impacted by the weather vagaries of climate change? Yeah, if we look at the whole country, we've seen impacts on really everything. It just depends on the time and the place. So we look back a few years, for example, in Nebraska, and there were massive floods, and that affected cattle, and that affected everyone planting their fields in that spring. And that flood was very directly tied to climate change impacts. Let me ask you this. A lot of similar. How did people experience that at their kitchen table and in the grocery store? Yeah, so a lot of people lost cattle in that event. So there are a lot of people who had a big impact on their bottom line because they no longer had the very animals they've been raising for a long time and investing in. And so that meant that a lot of farmers lost really substantial income. And it also meant that there were some delays in planting for those who were focusing more on crops. So that's going to be similar for almost all the climate impacts we could talk about. But was it higher food prices? Because I think this is how we get people to really pay attention to this and realize what's in it for them. So some of the first stuff, especially in the Midwest, a lot of our Midwest food is actually exported. So it affects our economy. It affects, but it's not going to affect right away your pocketbook in the grocery store. 
we are starting now to see that happening. So wine, California wines taste like smoke now, literally taste like smoke because of all the fires. Smoke is literally getting into the grapes. And some of the grapes are getting heat stressed. One of the jokes is that you should start planting Cabernet Sauvignons in Oregon because it's too cold up here. Not anymore <laughs> is kind of the joke in the wine industry. So we're starting to see those impacts on like specialty flavor things where your peppers aren't as good, your avocados are getting way more expensive because of droughts, that kind of grocery store stuff. Yes. But some of the big impactful stuff um, that Kathy was talking about, which is huge on our economy, is not a pack impacting you in the grocery store quite yet, other than the trickle down that we're starting to see as our economy gets shakier because of it. Uh, now, back to Kathy, how has the agricultural part of our food production system changed or evolved due to technology, cultural shifts, uh, as well as climate change? And which has been the most dramatic? Would it be technology, cultural shifts, or climate change? Yeah, well, I mean, first, climate change, as we've already talked about and as you laid out in the introduction, has really presented a lot of challenges for agriculture. We've got the things we've listed already, the droughts, floods, and heat waves. A lot of other just shifts in the seasons, all of those are affecting agriculture. And that's rapidly becoming a lot more challenging for farms than it was in the recent past. For the most part, though, our food production system hasn't changed a lot in response to or in preparation for climate change. We have a lot of landscape where land is still regularly plowed, where we're releasing lots of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, where we've got fertilizers that we're adding rather than integrating the kinds of crops that could reduce their own nutrients. So all of that means we're releasing lots of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. And that's a really powerful greenhouse gas, about 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So it's really important that we still have a system that's depending on contributing to climate change at the same time as it's really heavily impacted by climate change. And we're starting, got some technology responses that are helping us to make some incremental changes. But a lot of that is smaller changes than we need. So, for example, forms of precision agriculture rely on large tractors and advanced geolocating systems. They're big and expensive, and only the farms with lots of money can buy those things. And they tend to reduce the use of fertilizer a little bit, which means they reduce the impact on climate change a little bit. But it doesn't really get us to transforming the systems that are going to have a lower impact on climate change, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer and from plowing and from animal agriculture as well. So the most dramatic impacts we see are from climate change, but the most dramatic human response has been to lean into those old technologies that are not doing what we need them to do, the same things we've been doing for 70 years, instead of considering how we need to move toward a new system. Hmm, indeed. Even though it's not specifically due to climate change, but the shortage of our staples that we're seeing as a result of the war in Ukraine, is that driving any changes in our food production system? No. It should be. Uh, yeah. I see how shaking our head as well. You know, we should be moving towards systems that don't depend so much on those, those artificial fertilizer inputs, either synthetic uh, fertilizer inputs or other kinds of manufactured fertilizers. But we're still relying on those things that are coming from other countries and whose price is just getting higher and higher and higher. And so we really need to think about how can we change our production system so that we're a little bit more resilient on a in-country level. And I'll let Heather jump in there and see if she'd like to add. Yeah, and something I want to add to, there's a lot of scientists working on adapting crops and animals and things to climate change. But I want to really make it clear 
that climate change, one of the biggest things in our lifetime that's impacting is the unpredictability, not the warming, not the big thing. And so while in 100 years, if we stop making climate change happen, we might stabilize and we can adapt and get new crops that work in Oregon and new crops that work in Texas and new crops that work in New York. Right now, it's that we don't know what works because it's too chaotic. And so to get a new plant, to go through the development and the actual like legalities of it, it takes like 15 years to get a new crop. Well, the system is completely changed in 15 years. And so science can't keep up with the chaos that's happening right now. And that's what I see as the biggest challenge. And I'm, I, I agree with you, Kathy, on top of what Kathy said. I'm glad you brought that up because really the unpredictability that is driven by climate change is impacting not just our agriculture and food production. It's, it's probably, as you mentioned, it's probably how most of us are really experiencing climate change but may not know it, like the unpredictability of weather that we have here. You know, a couple of years ago, we were having what we call storm NATOs here in Texas. Uh, then we had, uh, it was so cold, it knocked out our grid. Uh, and, 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 and I hear you, what you're saying too, is those same sort of chaotic things are also affecting our, our food supply. So it's across the board. Now, and I want to put this out to uh, Heather, I've noticed that the, the price of organic foods is coming down. It's still a little higher, but it's not nearly the premium uh, over or other foods that it used to be. Why is that? Because organic is industrializing and taking advantage of the efficiency of industrialized agriculture. You have your industrialized tractors and you just put in a cow poop slurry instead of a you know potassium phosphate slurry or whatever it is. And so you're, um, you get that efficiency and they can bring it. Now, there's some fun controversy in the organic world, which the old school people, like literally organic was anti-industrialized agriculture. So can you have industrialized organic? But there's also the organic that we got to feed people and it's better. So I don't want to start that debate here. I just note that it exists. But the reason why organic is getting cheaper is because it's becoming wider spread. They're able to get the volume that makes things cheaper. Indeed. I, I've noticed that because I do try to eat organic and I think it's a very, very good thing. So thank you so much for explaining that to us. And I'm assuming by way of hope that that will continue, that we'll see more and more foods that are organic, that are affordable, where you don't, you know, where the premium is just a little bit. And maybe at some point in the near future, there is no premium. Yeah. And I hate to burst the bubble, though, that organic isn't enough, especially when it comes to climate change. <laughs> But yes, we are Indeed. slowly moving in that direction. But have you heard about the debacle of switching to organic? Is it in the Philippines that did that? Do you know what I'm talking about, Kathy? Sri Lanka, I think. Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, yes. That they switched to organic and they did it without doing it right. And it failed dramatically, not because organic will fail, but because they didn't support the farmers through the transition. And so um, this is something that has to be done carefully and well and issues like that make it so that the government's like, well, organic's going to fail, so we don't have to do it, which isn't true. You just need to support farmers. When you poison the fields, it takes years to build up your soil again type of thing. So what and happened? So, they thought um, they were doing organic and it... They switched to organic, like by government decree, everybody switched to organic and yields dropped dramatically, which, duh, is going to happen when you take a field that's been pesticide and, you know, heavily tilled and it doesn't have any of the soil biota, any of the natural systems in it. 
it will fail for a couple of years. I say you switch a field, it will take at least five years to get a good crop out of it as you're building the soils. And so it failed and their food supplies plummeted. And so they immediately had a gut response of, okay, this yeah, is they blamed work. it. And they so blamed they it on stopped. going organic as often happens. We're going to go to break now and we will continue this very, very enlightening conversation with these two ladies who are making us smarter. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on the intersection of climate change with the food we eat and the food we don't eat. And we are back with Kathy Day and Heather Carpenter, who are just truly making us smarter with all of this. So thank you, ladies, again. Now, I want to go back, and I think I'll start with Heather, to focus in on um, our show title, and that is The Food We Eat and the Food We Don't Eat. So how is or how has climate change affected foods that perhaps we used to eat or we want to eat and we don't eat? Is there any food that's become extinct or that has just gotten so unhealthy or untasty that uh, people don't eat it? In other words, is climate change driven something off of our table or plate by any chance? I think our food is so dependent on things being shipped and we just switch our suppliers. So to you and I, no. Um, I think on small local things, yes. But I think we're still in the initial like changes of the chaos coming and all the, the climate change impacts that we can feel. And so I would say that not yet. I see it in the very near future, but currently I wouldn't say that there's foods that you can no longer get across, you know, at the grocery store, maybe at your farmer's market, but not at the grocery store because we just change our providers. We get it from Canada instead of from Mexico. or And Chile, yeah. And and, uh, Kathy, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, because I'd agree first that we haven't really lost foods due to climate change as yet. We're still just getting started. But at the same time, if we look kind of at our broader sweep of history, we've lost a lot of culturally important foods for other reasons. And those are going to affect our future resilience for climate change. So we think about things like Carolina gold rice that have recently been brought back. These are, you know, culturally important foods to the southeast. In this case, they came over as West African food systems moved over to the United States, they became really rich and important parts of the Southern cuisine. And yet they were lost because everyone just started buying minute rice at a certain point as we got more and more industrialized foods. And as people try to bring some of those back, we're starting to be able to see ways in which we can recover some seed diversity and we can get some of those really interesting varieties back. And we're going to need those as we go forward into climate change, because as we get more and more of the kinds of impacts we've already talked about, we're going to need more and more plant diversity and figure out which kinds of plants work well in different locations. And sometimes we're going to need plants that we haven't really ever used before. So we're going to need to rely on that genetic diversity that's in those old varieties and kind of bring it forward. So organizations like Native Seed Search in Tucson that are working to help develop arid adapted varieties, rely on some of the older varieties and work with local indigenous populations with those, those are going to be really important to take us into the future to help ensure we have enough kinds of food, especially foods that are culturally important to people. Indeed. And I think you brought forth a very important 
point, and that is that we may in the future or maybe now uh, as it's happening lose or, or losing some foods because it's quicker, easier, and perhaps cheaper to get others. And so everybody flocks to those and nobody gets these others and they just kind of become extinct or, or, or stop being grown. Absolutely. Yeah, we've lost a huge amount of our food diversity over the past hundred years because we've gotten more and more narrow in what we grow in the fields. And we need to keep working to re-expand that if we're going to be better prepared for climate change as it gets more and more difficult to deal with. Indeed. Has there been any soil issues that have been driven by by climate change that have caused some effects? It's going to be indirect, but certainly if you just look at all of our industrialized systems, the heavy plowing, the heavy use of fertilizers, heavy use of pesticides, all of those things are causing a decline in our soils. For one thing, plowing in particular, a lot of other impacts are causing the soil to wash away or to blow away. And so we have maybe half the soil that we used to have in a lot of places, and that's a big issue. But then we also have the fact that all these fertilizers and pesticides are causing us to lose what Heather mentioned earlier, which is our soil biota. So as we use all of those inputs on the soil, we end up getting an essentially dead soil. So we need to help build those micro kind of little tiny beings that live in the soil. There are just thousands and thousands in every teaspoonful. We need to build them back up if we're going to have those kinds of organic and beyond organic systems that we need to deal with climate change. And Heather, as doing research, I keep reading about the nutrient loss in our foods due to climate change. So I want to talk for a minute, though, about what has been or what is the effect of climate change caused agricultural issues on our health. Climate change impacting our health, you could go lots of directions of heat and all that stuff, but on our food, let's focus on the food. Right. The nutrient loss one is a very interesting one and one that we tend to focus on. Now, it's controversial because our food is less nutritious right now because our soils have been stripped, because we pick it too early and ship it across the globe because uh, we're growing different varieties that aren't as nutrient dense. There's a lot of reasons, but what's happening why climate change is making our foods less nutrient dense is there's more CO2, so the plants can do more photosynthesis and they make more sugars. And so they're literally diluting out. They just, they don't have less nutrients in them, although some do, but that's complicated. Um, They have more sugars, so they are sweeter and you're just washing out the nutrients and so all of this combined means you need to eat two pieces of broccoli instead of one to get the same nutrients you were getting. And so it's minor right now, but you could see this becoming a bigger deal in the future. And it actually also makes the plants more vulnerable to pests and diseases because they have more sugar. So the bugs like them, the fungus likes them, the bacteria likes them. They're just more sweet and delicious. And so we're going to see that impact on what we actually get from our food in that way. But that's the main thing I see. Now, so Heather, though, how has the food production side or the industrial food industry responded to those impacts that you just mentioned? Kind of glossing over them or what? <laughs> you deny them? Do you call them the, that they don't exist or... Some scientists say it's just because we've depleted our soils, um, which we have depleted our soils because we've only put the NPK, the nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus on our soils as our bulk fertilizer. That's a little tiny micronutrients, which is what we actually want for nutrients. 
that's what's being depleted in our soils. So the it's being there are real facts that are being emphasized to obscure other facts in the conversation by people with agendas. So let me talk a little bit, though, about leaving, I guess, agriculture, and, and I guess I call it moving into the food production or food processing part. How is that part of things, once it leaves the farm, how is that uh, driving or contributing or impacting climate change? Kathy? And one of the start, and I, Kathy, you might have something to add mm-hmm. to this, but one of the things to start is that a lot of plants have huge carbon footprints, um, which doesn't make sense because every kindergartner knows, okay, every kindergartner knows that, you know, plants take in CO2, so plants shouldn't be adding CO2. But the processing, potatoes have a massive footprint because how much do we cut up, freeze, fry, ship, transport, do all of this stuff that their footprint is absolutely massive. And so that footprint of the processing can be huge. One thing I saw was post-farm gate is a fun way of putting it, that that processing can actually add a huge amount of carbon to the atmosphere. Go ahead, Kathy. Kathy? Yeah. Uh, processing combined with packaging, transportation, all of those kind of post-farm gate pieces, as Heather laid out, those take up about 18% of the total agricultural emissions out there. So that's not peanuts. It definitely matters, and it's going to really affect whether or not we can decrease our emissions if we consider whether or not we need to stick with that heavily processed food pathway or maybe move toward more of us having a relationship with our local farmer and being able to buy something that's much less processed. Indeed, and and there is a big push on for that. I know one of our sponsors, the uh, Weston uh, A. Price Foundation, has this big uh, campaign, and it's like take the 50% pledge. And what they're asking people to do is to pledge that they'll get 50% of their produce from local farmers' markets. And that can be effective in certain areas, like we're here in North Texas, and we are, we are surrounded by farmers' markets. But I rather suspect everybody is not as fortunate, and some people just totally have to get it shipped in. So, but let me ask you this, and I think we're going to go ahead and go to break, and we'll be right back on the other side. And then I want to talk to um, Heather about any stats or statistics that we may have on the economic cost of climate change on ag and land use. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods Markets, Natural Grocers, Central Markets, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. 
to today's show on the intersection of climate change with the food we do eat and the food that we don't eat. And we are back with Dr. Kathy Day uh, with the Climate Policy uh, Coordination for the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition and Dr. Heather Carpenter with the University of Portland and who lives on a small farm and she's in the process of taking her family to only eating meat and vegetables that she grows. So we're, we're excited about the information that they are sharing with us. So now uh, I want to go back to Heather and talk a little bit about the economic cost of climate change on our ag system and food production. Are there any statistics out there that, that tell us that the dollar value or the estimate of what's being lost in terms of, of the impact of climate change? So I tried to do a quick search on this, and I found so much confusion, to be honest. Now, I am not personally a remember the statistics, which, by the way, statistics are useful and wonderful, and I'm not knocking statistics, but, like, I'm not the person who can pull off the statistics off the top of my head because it's so complicated. What do you count? Do you count the fact that we need to build a dam and that's billions of dollars, or do you just count the small things or the reduction in crops? Or what do you count for this? So I have not seen a number. And Kathy, if you have a number that you would like to bring in here, I would love to hear it. But I just want to say that the economic impacts are going to be huge and on every scale, on the personal scale up to the big government, onto the global scale of how do we adapt to these systems? How do we change our partners of trade even on the global scale? Where do we get our tomatoes from type of thing? And it's going to be everything from building dams to farmers putting in drip systems to you changing, do you not buy the avocado because it's not worth it because you care and drought in California and avocados that use so much water um, is not a good idea. So it's affecting all the levels on an economic way. Are we in danger of losing any food, though, anywhere on the global stage due to climate change? Like, for example, is there some food that's only grown in a certain region and then that region is experiencing pressures? You definitely see versions of this happening, which long term, I think it could level out as we adapt. But in the short term, Coffee's grown on the side of mountains as climate change and they move up the mountains. You reach the top of the mountain and you can't grow there anymore. Now, maybe you could grow that coffee in Texas instead of in, or, or, you know, maybe not Texas, but, you know, in Colorado instead of in Costa Rica. But we don't have the infrastructure, the setup, the growers and all of that stuff. And so, yes, when we settle out, we'll be able to adapt and maybe bring this stuff back. But right now on a functional scale, yes, we might run out of things like coffee and chocolate that grow in such belts of climate that are disappearing where they are right now. And that's interesting. And I want to throw this to Kathy. It's interesting because we know these things are coming because they're here already in certain places. And then we can look out and see them right ahead of us in other places. So we know they're coming. So Kathy, what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of things we can do. Uh, You know, I work on federal policy, so I'm going to speak to United States policy at this point. And one of the big things that we're trying to do right now here at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, where we're representing 130 organizations that work in food and farming across the country, is push to get people to call in to their representatives and senators to support the Agriculture Resilience Act. Because the Agriculture Resilience Act 
is getting to address a bunch of the issues that we've already talked about, helping to ensure that people have the help they need to transition on the farm, but also helping people to deal with their at-home food waste and their in-school food waste and to compost things. So pushing on having some better legislation makes a big difference. But here at home, getting a relationship with your farmer, understanding what they do, and understanding whether or not they produce food in a way that you can get behind ethically is also a big important piece that any of us can do. And I speak to affordability issues that's often brought up when we start talking about these issues of trying to eat more sustainably. Folks should know that in a lot of states, at least half the states right now have double up food bucks. That's where you can use your SNAP dollars to get twice as much produce as somebody buying with an ordinary dollar. So it's a great way to go to your farmer's market and get to participate with your stamp money. It seems like, though, now is an opportunity because people are now aware of what happens and they feel food shortages and price increases by way of what's going on in Ukraine. And now seems to be a good opportunity to say, now you see what can happen when our agriculture system here at home even is impacted by climate change, uh, be it climate change or war, the impact and the manifestation will be the same. High prices, less, less quality, less availability. Yeah, definitely. And it's also it's, um, it's, it's highlighting the fact that we need to build resilience regardless of whether it's war or climate change. We need to be building in the systems that make our diversity in how we produce on our farms that increase the kinds of things we're growing and that get all of us more involved in ensuring that how we grow is better. Yeah, and I want to add, if I can, really quick, um, really, as Kathy said, talk to your representatives, really pester them, because we often put it on, oh, well, people will just buy what they want and vote with your dollar type of thing. But for a farmer to adapt, think about water. A drip system is much less water wasting than flood. It's extremely expensive for a farmer to adapt to that. If there's a federal system that gives them low interest loans or, you know, just straight pay it back type of money, they could adapt better. So putting it on the farmer isn't really fair. We need a big system that can actually help us through this transition. And the way we can make that big system happen is pestering our representatives. How is agricultural science responding to these climate change impacts, Kathy? Yeah, that's such a complicated question. There's so many different pieces to the system that we call agricultural science, and I think some of them often get laughed out of the conversation. So first of all, we have a lot of research that happens with the big agribusinesses. And so if they're doing research, they're trying to find systems or crops or fertilizers that are going to make them a profit. They're not thinking about our long-term viability. They're thinking about their income. And so we need to think about better investing in public research. So that, again, comes back to let's talk to our legislatures, ask them to invest in publicly sponsored research. And that includes things where we're developing those crops and uh, varietals for the future. So we have the kinds of crops that we need to deal with climate change. But that also includes things where we're having people paid to understand how change happens on the farm. So we help pay rural sociologists. We help pay agricultural geographers to do their research so we can understand how change happens and we can better help people to make the transition by paying them through federal programs, for example, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program or the Conservation Stewardship Program. And we also need to learn more about um, how we can have long-term research. So we need to be able to have groups of researchers who are paid for 20 years or over 30 years to look at how better agricultural systems work because so many of our studies, the way we pay them right now, they get 
maybe a five-year chunk of funding. And that isn't enough time to really understand the full benefits of these complicated holistic systems that are going to be our much better climate alternative. Right, and the research ends. Yeah, the research ends in five years when the the grant ends. But I tell you, just talking with you two ladies today, there seems to be, to me, a need to have a lot more work done on resiliency, crop resiliency, uh, in the face of, of this chaotic weather that's being driven by climate change so that we can be prepared for that. It just doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> that, that we're not prepared or, or have some things, systems or processes and places for that. Uh, last thing I want to talk about, though, before we go, and that is to uh, Heather. I know that you are, as I said, in the process of separating your family from the industrial food system. So how can others do this? And what do you think can be done to incentivize more people doing this? I think the best incentive is that it tastes better. Like, just arguably, it just tastes better. And everybody can grow basil on their windowsill. You can buy an LED, like, full-spectrum light, and you can grow it in your, you know, basement apartment if you have to and make your own pesto um, to try and separate. Just That's just a bit of an emotional one. But you can do what you can do. You know, I have five acres, and I've got pigs and chickens and turkeys and, you know, vegetables and all of this stuff. But not everybody has what I have. And let me say, my food is not cheaper, okay? I am not pulling off, like, the cheap food. I am spending too much money on my food because I want it to be good like this. But, oh, my goodness, the flavor of it, the things that people cry for my eggs because they're so much better flavored and all of that stuff. And so I've had students be like, I don't like kale. Kale is delicious when they try my kale because it's fresh and it's grown and stuff like that. So growing what you can grow on your in your situation, whether it be basil up to having a couple of chickens in your backyard or having the full-fledged, I'm going to have <laughs> whatever it is, is all valid and all works in that direction. and just helps you have that awareness of why you want to be trying. And then you can make better decisions in the grocery store as well. It sounds like you're saying, try something growing of your own. Try it and taste it and see. And that'll be the incentive. Thank you. We just have one minute to go. And I just want to go back uh, really briefly to Kathy and have you tell us how what else can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions? Yeah, well, I think what Heather just pointed out is a big part of that. If you Go out, you talk to your representatives, you have a relationship with your farmer, start growing something yourself and see what that experience is like. And start making the relationships not just with your, you know, your federal representatives, but also look at making relationships in your municipality, because a lot of that is where change happens. Talk about making farmers markets, talk about helping them make connections, making food hubs, all the kinds of things that can help ensure we have better access to farmers who are growing really sustainably. Indeed. You guys have made us you ladies, have made us much smarter. And we really appreciate your help in unpacking this and and just connecting the dots for people about why our agriculture system is really so important. But it's something that we don't tend to pay a lot of attention to because the food just keeps coming. And I, I think with the COVID pandemic has caused people to go inward a little and think uh, much more about uh, nutrition and its intersection with health. And all of that goes to our agriculture and food production system, which is being increasingly driven by climate change. So thank you. We have been today with Dr. Kathy Day uh, and Dr. Heather Carpenter, 
who are lifelong, uh, I would say, advocates for sustainable agriculture and enhancement of our agricultural system. So again, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today and join us again next week for our last show on health and environmental impacts of our agriculture, food production, and land use. Thank you. Thank you.